Global Capital Podcasts. Hello and welcome to the Global Capital Podcast. I'm Ralph Sinclair and I'm the London Bureau Chief at Global Capital. And I'm John Hay, Corporate Finance and Sustainability Editor. And every week we bring you all that is most interesting from the world's capital markets and uh, everything you listen to on the show you can read about at globalcapital.com. It, uh, everything's paywalled, obviously, because we've got to make money somehow. Uh, but you can, of course, apply for a trial uh, and read some of it for free for some time. Um, now, there's a special treat coming up this week in that we had a rare chance to speak to Bill Thornhill, our covered bond editor, at a very interesting time for that market. Issuers are facing a dilemma there for November. Do they try and do a bond now that might cost them a bit more than they would usually like to pay? Or do they wait until January for a busier month when investors will have more cash to deploy, but when the market could be far worse too? Uh, We'll be talking to him about that and an innovation from uh, JP Morgan for that market later on. And I think cover bonds are interesting, particularly, aren't they, Ralph? Because this is uh, a, a sort of microcosm of the, of the markets in general. All the groups of issuers are facing different conditions because the markets operate differently. But at the same time, they've all dealing with the same uncertainty as we come into a rather gloomy end of the year in the markets, um, upset particularly by the war in, in Palestine and, and Israel. And um, all the issues are having to decide whether now is the time to do funding or whether to wait for a, a very uncertain 2024 when the, the rate pattern will be new. We're into this higher for longer environment that everyone's now expecting. And uh, we don't know the effects on the markets. Yeah, absolutely. And last year, uh, we uh, also were contending with uh, war and uh, interest rate dilemmas. And issuers took the view that they would front load a lot of their issuance into January. Uh, and I guess they'll be thinking about the same thing now. In particular, for bank funding officials, it's interesting because they had a very disruptive year last year too and come November they actually had their biggest month of the year now November is traditionally the last sort of the last hurrah uh, for bond issuers generally uh, they look to do their last bits of funding before the Thanksgiving holiday in the US traditionally speaking then everything gets a bit quieter last year November turned out to be the busiest month of the year for bank funding officials um, and I guess they're facing sort of a very similar sort of decision this time around. I don't think people think that this November is going to be quite as busy for them. But uh, certainly, you know, all the signs are that the market is uh, rearing up to do a number of exciting deals. Mm. And I think it's very much true that the markets are open into November and December if issuers want to come. But I think you're right, we, we will see a lot of uh, early funding next year, because, you know, when there's uncertainty, that seems now to be the default way that treasurers deal with it. Yeah, yeah. Um, But first, we've got one of the biggest stories in emerging markets since the pandemic uh, began, and that's the uh, sovereign debt restructuring tale. Uh, Sub-Saharan African countries in particular have been locked out of the bond market, while a number have had to default and reorganise their piles of debt with their creditors. This week, we reported on a breakthrough in Zambia's debt restructuring, and here to tell us all about it and what it means is George Collard, our senior emerging markets reporter. Welcome once again, George. Good morning. Um, Now, as you say at the top of your story this week, George, uh, this has been a torturous journey for Zambia and uh, and its creditors and, and of course, the journalists that have been tracking it too. Uh, Give us a sense of what's been going on and uh, for how long. I don't think we can just go straight to the pudding uh, with this one with the latest news. I think the listeners will have to eat their greens first. 
Yeah, it's been exactly three years since Zambia first defaulted, um, which is an awful long time. Um, and since then, there's been a, a long and winding path towards what has happened um, in the past week, which is that Zambia has reached a preliminary agreement with its with its bondholders. Um, yeah, it's taken far longer than anyone would have liked to have got here. Gives a bit of a flavour of the sort of... Um difficult points that Zambia has sort of had to run into because it's, it's negotiating with a lot of different parties and um, of course this being Africa China is a major creditor too and they've they've sort of thrown spanners in the works at various points because they don't I guess they haven't followed the sort of traditional um, route to uh, agreeing on debt restructuring have they? No exactly I think this this was seen as a, as a big test for sovereign debt restructuring in general because as you say it's the first one where debt to Chinese creditors has been a large chunk of the debt stock. Um, it's actually most of the debt stock to uh, bilateral creditors. So there's the Paris Club, which is mostly Western countries such as the UK, the US, um, but there's also China. Um, and yeah, as you said, Ch China has upended some of the norms, some of the um, things that have generally been done in debt restructuring in the past, which are not legally binding. They're not things that are set in stone in, in law, but are, are conventions that have been followed and China has pushed back on a lot of those. And that's why it took two years for those bilateral creditors to come to an agreement. They, they couldn't even agree on what to agree on effectively for, <laughs> for two years. Right. So so what sort of agreement have they agreed to agree upon now and, and who has agreed to it? So these bilateral creditors reached an agreement with Zambia in the summer, uh, which yeah took a very long time. Um, and because Zambia applied for a debt treatment under the G20's common framework, there's a set order in which things can be done. So it, it must be bilateral creditors first, and only then can private creditors, such as bondholders, um, start their own negotiations. So they've had to sit there and wait for, well, three years before any talks could even begin. And uh, John, this must have been a big topic at the IMF World Bank meetings in Marrakesh, where you uh, most recently were. What, what, uh, what were people saying about it there? Yes, yeah, certainly. It, it was a big issue. And they were, Zambia were very keen to actually sign off the agreement uh, at Marrakesh itself. The, it, as George mentioned, this, this is a, a sort of paradigm for the new environment of debt restructuring. China has emerged as one of the biggest creditors to developing countries, particularly in Africa, but not just there, in all sorts of other places like Sri Lanka and so on. And, and their attitude is different. They're not part of the Paris Club, which is the forum that uh, Western countries have traditionally used to thrash out debt restructurings. Um, people hope that they might join, but, but they haven't yet. And they have different norms, which include not wanting to have principal write downs where they can avoid it. And this is particularly because for some of the Chinese banks, for example, it, it's, it's legally problematic to accept reductions in principle. So they've preferred to extend debts, make them longer, give the countries longer to pay back rather than cutting the principal amount. And th there are also other issues that China particularly cares that other creditors should not get a better deal than itself. And some people think this is because the civil servants involved don't want to lose face and sort of appear to, to have been ripped off. Um, but, but that has also caused problems. That in particular relates to uh, multilateral development bank lending, doesn't it? Because they they tend to get, am I right in thinking, they tend to get a sort of slightly preferential treatment in, in debt restructurings? Entirely. They And that's the whole purpose and, and sort of essence of the MDB model, that they 
get, you know, the, people don't default to them. And, uh, you know, one of the reasons is that the the very shareholders of these multilateral development banks are all the countries themselves, including the developing countries. So they'd be defaulting to themselves. But but the, most crucially, the um, multilateral development banks and the IMF act as lenders of last resort. And if you go defaulting to them, then they're not able to do that. And countries need a lender of last resort. So it's generally agreed that it's not a good idea to start roping them into restructurings. We, we saw this in Zambia um, when in, in the summer of 2022, the, the official creditor group for Zambia, which included China and the Paris Club, etc. They backed the restructuring under the common framework, which at the time, everyone we spoke to said was fantastic news. It looked like it would finally get going and that perhaps it could be the end of 2022 that um, Zambia's case would be sorted. But as, as John mentioned, there was China then started saying, well, why aren't multilateral lenders involved? And, and in uh, February this year, they requested that multilateral development banks, for example, are part of the restructuring, which everyone we spoke to again said was just a complete non-starter. But it, it was just one of the many spanners that got thrown into the works and just added to time. Just for completeness sake, how did that dispute end? Well, they weren't included. And that was never going to happen for, for, for all the reasons John John said. But the comparability issue, the, the comparability of treatment um, was, was also important in other ways, wasn't it, George? Because the Chinese were keen that, um, you know, private creditors, for example, should not get a, any sort of better treatment than, than what they were agreeing to. Yeah, exactly. And it, it's tricky because just because you're going to get comparability of treatment, it doesn't mean you all need to have the same terms. As long as the road to getting the, the, the value reduction of your debt, like it, that can be very different. And it is in this case, bondholders are, are having a different deal with Zambia than those bilateral creditors, which can make it even murkier because then each side has to work out exactly what the other side's getting and people reach different conclusions. Okay, well, tell us about that then. Um, there are some new bonds under this debt restructuring plan. Now, have they just tinkered with the coupon a maturity date like they normally do? Or- or have they done something else to make it more affordable for Zambia? Um, so Zambia has three euro bonds uh, upon which it has defaulted, um, $3 billion that is, uh, which were one matured in 2022, um, but the principal was not repaid, so that's still outstanding. Uh, and then a 2024 euro bond and a 2027 euro bond. Okay, and then there's these new bonds that um, I guess supersede them or replace them or are the, uh, you know, the, the way out of um, default Tell us a bit about those. There's two, aren't there? And they, they've got sort of pretty curious structures. They do, yes. So there's Bond A, which has a face value of $2 billion, and that matures in 2035, and it has an amortizing payment profile. So the the uh, coupon structure changes over time, and, and it will start repaying pretty much immediately as soon as the exchange happens, and then, uh, as mentioned, matures in 2035. And then Bond B has a face value of $1.135 billion, uh, matures in 2053, but payments do not start until, um, amortizing payments do not start until September 2051, so just before the maturity. And the coupon is is only half a percent um, from December this year. So that's basically a very long dated bond um, where they will pay the principal back in about 30 years and uh, with low interest. Yeah. Now, but that bond has some special terms, hasn't it? Uh, bond B is what's known as a state contingent debt instrument, which means that its terms might change um, depending on certain things being triggered. 
And what are those things? Well, firstly, there are, there are two triggers. The first one is based on the IMF's composite indicator, which is a measure used by the IMF under its debt sustainability framework for low-income countries that mashes together a load of economic indicators to effectively assess the ability of a country to repay debt. Um, and at the moment, Zambia is, is classified as, as weak. It's debt carrying capacity. That's how the IMF terms it, debt carrying capacity. So it's seen as weak, but it's very close to medium. And of course, bondholders, they're not want to agree, not going to want to agree a deal for debt relief with a country that is seen as a weak um, issuer, but then only to see it go to medium in a few years time and essentially get away with it. So, so you're saying that basically the debt carrying capacity of Zambia, if it becomes medium quality, Zambia ought to pay more in the view of bondholders and and that this debt instrument actually will make that happen exactly yeah so the terms of the bond will change and it only applies to bond b bond bond a's terms will stay the same no matter what but bond b the the coupons will rise and the and the maturity will shorten so effectively yes zambia will be paying more in a shorter space of time i'm puzzled you you mentioned that bondholders don't like these sorts of structures why have they agreed to it i think generally because of the complications in zambia it's it's taken so long to get anywhere that it's probably seen as the least worst solution really the real purpose is to square this circle of debt comparability isn't it because they the bondholders having waited three years to get a restructuring agreement now know that they've got to have something that's comparable to what zambia's agreed with the governments right and 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 this is an attempt to do that. Yeah, exactly. I mean, do these do these notes have anything in common with the GDP linked warrants that Ukraine entered into some years ago? Because that was a, I mean, even before the Russian uh, invasion, those instruments did not seem to work out as a great deal for Ukraine, and, and surely that would have been a, a valuable lesson for this restructuring. No, you're right, and and yeah, one of the bondholders I spoke to was he was keen to stress that it is not the same as a GDP warrant bond B because it has a fixed coupon, so so there is a ceiling of a ceiling in the amount that Zambia will end up paying. Right, because that was the problem with the uh, Ukraine GDP link warrants, wasn't it? Was that GDP rose so much that it ended up paying more back or was owing more than uh, it actually would have owed in the first place had it um, simply kept the original debt in place. Okay, so what's what's next for this package then? Is this is this all agreed, done and dusted now? Has every bondholder agreed to it? Nope. Um, there, there's an added complication with bond B in the this composite indicator might actually be scrapped by the IMF before 2026, which is there's going to be a three year period between 2026 and 2028 when the, when the IMF and the World Bank will assess Zambia's debt carrying capacity twice a year. Uh, but they might actually scrap the composite indicator before then, which means they've had to add in a second trigger, um, which is based on Zambia's um, exports and, and dollar revenue. Um, so, yeah, it's there are multiple layers to, to bond B. Uh, this seems fiendish. I mean, does any of this actually offer Zambia any debt relief? Uh, yes, they they are taking uh, bondholders at least are taking an eighteen percent haircut on on the money owed to them. Um, so there is debt relief. Um, one of the criticisms of the structure has been, and it's yet another complication this time on Bond A, is that repayments are going to start pretty much immediately, um, which is not common in debt restructurings normally. You, you agree a restructuring, you agree some new terms, and then there's a bit of debt relief, perhaps a year or two, perhaps a bit longer, where repayments back to bondholders are, are either very low or, or non-existent, whereas Zambia is pretty much going straight into into debt repayments. Right. And um, obviously there are other 
uh, debt restructuring negotiations going on. Um, Suriname is one that springs to mind. Um, but obviously there are a whole host of uh, African countries contemplating debt restructuring themselves. Um, do we now have a, a model for them to follow with this this deal or is this quite specific to Zambia, do you think? Um, yes and no. Yes, in the sense that some of the fundamental concepts that bilateral creditors disagreed on, such as the Paris Club and China, must have at least been um, agreed upon because bilateral creditors have eventually reached a deal with Zambia. So in that sense, yes. In another sense, no, mainly because every restructuring is different. Every country has its own idiosyncrasies and and the debt stock's different. Ghana, for example, the, the debt owed to China is far smaller. So this dispute with with between Paris Club and China, it's probably not going to be as um, at the forefront in Ghana, for example. And there's a suggestion in your article that Ghana might use a state contingent debt instrument as well. Yeah, exactly. Um, it, it wouldn't be quite the same as Zambia's because there's no question of Ghana's debt carrying capacity, for example. It, it's, it's a medium it's assessed as medium by the IMF and there's absolutely no chance of it going to high and I don't think there's much chance of it going to weak either. So um, mm-hmm. yeah, there will. The, what what sort of bond that will be, I, I don't think has been agreed, um, but it, it would be different to Zambia's. So does this mean Zambia's now out of the woods and, and, the, and the bondholders indeed and other creditors and that they can move on? Uh, nope, sadly not. Um, Bondholders, the, the whole bondholder group needs to vote on this deal now. So the, so the steering committee which of bondholders, which has been negotiating with Zambia, um, that only represents 18% of, of euro bondholders. And it's part of a wider group that holds 40% of them. So it does need to go to a vote. Um, I think 66% of the bonds need to vote yes for this to go through. Um, I Speaking to the bondholders, um, or at least some of them in the past week, they're pretty confident it, it will go ahead. Um, the price of Zambia bonds rallied a few cash points on secondary markets since the deal was announced. So I, th- I think people will be surprised if it doesn't. Um, but then there's also the question of, you know, bilateral creditors need to look at this and decide whether they like it or not, whether they think it adheres to the comparability of treatment uh, principle. So while it's a very big step forward, there is there is more to do. And if they don't agree, they could send it back to the negotiating table. Exactly. And I think nobody wants that. Well, Jules, we certainly look forward to reading the rest of your coverage of Zambia and uh, the the myriad other uh, sovereign debt restructurings going on. Um, Probably some more sleepless nights for you, I I shouldn't wonder. But now for something completely different and hopefully altogether simpler. And that's the latest news in the covered bond market with our covered bond editor, Bill Thornhill. Hello, Bill. Welcome back to the podcast. Welcome. Hello. Cover bonds. Uh, they are having another bumpy year, but a very sluggish couple of months. Uh, but you think November is a critical month for issuers. Uh, tell us why that is. Well, first of all, they haven't issued much in September and October, and there's a bit of catch up to do there. Uh, and secondly, uh, the likelihood is if, if they wait until January, uh, they may well end up paying a uh, higher cost for funding. Right. January is, of course, one of the biggest months for covered bond issues and, in fact, any any bond issuer. So um, I guess that what you're saying is they're facing a dilemma over whether they sort of, what, 
risk risk a slightly dubious market now or uh, wait till January when there should be more money about, but when, when spreads could be a lot wider, is that right? That's basically it, yeah. So uh, in January, they could be competing every day with two or three other issuers uh, and almost definitely will have to pay a higher spread. Whereas if they go in November, the likelihood is they they won't face such high competition, uh, that they'll have the market to themselves uh, and that they will get a, tight, a slightly tighter spread. Right. Now, you mentioned uh, been a bad couple of months. Um, give us a bit of an overview of what it's been like in the cover bond market this year. Uh, we've had almost, well, sorry, very similar issuance to what we had last year. Last year was 200, just over 200 billion uh, in euros benchmark format. And this year we've already exceeded 175 billion. Uh, so not far behind and, and people are expecting maybe another 10 or 12 billion to be issued before the end of the year. So probably not too far behind, uh, last year, um, but so, but ultimately, you know, uh, it's been a difficult year because I think people have been unable to access the long end of the market and cover bonds is supposed to be a product which is for used for long dated funding. Right. And they just haven't done that, have they? There's been a lot of three year and five year deals. That's right. The long end of the curve has, has not really repriced. And, and part of the problem there is due to the fact that the swaps curve is inverted, which means that the short end yields are higher than the long end so that means issuers have to try to make up that difference uh, by paying a bigger spread which they're reluctant to do um we said about uh the last couple of months being particularly bad and that's quite unusual isn't it because september and october are usually very busy months in the bond market generally just how bad was it for covered bond issuers uh, we'll put it this way, the two months together came to just under 20 billion, uh, whereas last year, the same period, 40 billion and the year before, 36 billion. So considerably below. But Bill, what is it actually that's been bad for them? You you've, you've said how the issuance is down, but what, what's putting people off the market at the moment? I think, I mean, we had, you know, quite a lot of issuance uh, up into the period of August and August actually was much busier than usual. So there was a lot of uh, what they say front loading um, and there was an impression that investors were getting full on their credit lines uh, and some were saying enough is enough. We can't take any more. And that was particularly the case with smaller, smaller issuers uh, who they could turn their nose up to um, less so with national champions where, which nearly always have good credit line availability. And what are the big factors that are, are making issuers nervous about the market in January? Why Why would, is there, is there anything going on in the back, other than the fact there'll just be a lot more deals going on? Is there any wider factors that are driving spreads wider? Well, there's uh, quite a high chance that we're going to see uh, a pickup in SSA issuance, um, super sovereigns, supranationals and agencies, uh, which are also priced against um, uh, mid swaps and they're considered a rates product because they're also highly rated triple a rated uh, and banks buy them from for their for regulatory purposes for liquidity purposes so it's the same kind of investors that are buying across sovereigns supranationals and covered bonds uh, and if 
um, as seems likely, the, the sovereign and supranational market issuance picks up uh, strongly next year uh, and spreads widen there. It's going to have an impact on cover bonds uh, and push spreads wide. It'll add to spreads, you know, apart from the fact that everybody's trying to issue at the same time, it's going to make relative value to that asset class not look so good. So it's, it's pushing in the wrong direction. Is this something that there's debate about, Bill, in the market? Or is it that pretty much everyone agrees spreads are going to widen? Because if, if everyone agrees on it, then you'd think that issuers would you know, be no brainer. They, they just would come now. I don't think everybody agrees on it. Um, I think there are some people who who think, you know, the spread widening that we've seen this year uh, is, is almost done. Uh, and I think there are a lot of people who believe that whilst we see further widening over the first half of next year, that actually the market ends up getting tighter in the second half of the year. So it's all about timing. Um, it, you know, it's a difficult one to predict. And not everyone is on board with the idea of spreads, spreads widening. They say, for example, that, you know, the relative value that's currently on offer is good, which is true. But it may not be in January for aforementioned reasons. Is there a sense that different parts of the covered bond market are uh, facing this dilemma more than others? For example, are issuers from the Eurozone periphery uh, under more pressure to do deals in November, would you say, than, for example, issuers from Germany? Uh, well, the Italian issuers were late to the game. Unfortunately, they didn't get their... Um, sign off for uh, a change in their cover bond programs legally until June. So they ended up bunching up a lot of their deals in the second half of this year. Uh, and we know there are a few Italian issuers still to come this year. But that is not so much the problem, actually. The repricing has has occurred to a large extent in Italy. And we've seen some deals coming at extremely wide levels. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm hearing talk from uh, some syndicate managers who say asset managers are, are quite finding it quite easy to switch out of German deals and going into Italian deals. In fact, where the real vulnerability uh, counterintuitively lies is with core Europe and specifically Germany, where which benefited hugely from the cover bond purchase program and still doesn't seem to have repriced as much as other markets. Well, this is the ECB's cover bond purchase program, which is Correct, effectively yeah. stopped now, hasn't it? So the uh, the ECB is no longer hoovering up vast chunks of uh, every new cover bond that comes to market. Hence, in fact, there's been so much more issuance. Exactly. So, I mean, back in the heyday, you know, they were buying half of every deal and then it gradually fell to 10% of every deal. Uh, but then they were still supporting the market in the secondary market. But all that has now completely gone. Um, and so that, you know, demand that wasn't that was there before needs to be filled by by other people. Uh, and those those happen to be basically asset managers have stepped into the breach. Um, and there's hope that more asset managers will continue to return. We don't think that that trend has, has finished yet. Uh, they're looking for higher yields and a steeper curve. It's a bit paradoxical, though, isn't it, Bill? Because you've been saying for probably a couple of months that the German market ought to reprice wider, but it hasn't yet. And but I mean, the price is what it is, isn't it? I mean, if if investors are still happy to own the bonds at these levels, um, who's to say that they that they're going to widen? Um, 
Well, ultimately, they will widen if if the supply is there and the new issue premiums are wider. Um, specifically, it, it kind of is more likely to happen at the long end or in, in, in tenors which are longer than five years. I think the the problem with the Germans is, uh, with a lot of the German banks, is that they have a, a specialist business model where they're essentially just mortgage institutions uh, and they don't take deposits. Uh, and they have very, very tight margins. So every extra basis point really does matter to them. Um, and they, you know, it's completely different from, from a universal bank like Lloyd's or somebody, you know, or one of the French banks, BNP Paribas. You know, they make money. Uh, they make more money and more profit. They they have, they're quite easily will pay up, you know, a couple of basis points to get the deal done um, if it fits in with their funding needs. In terms of German covered bonds, though, in particular in the secondary market, isn't the um, pace at which they might be widening rather more a factor of the poor liquidity in the market too? There's an awful lot of bonds, aren't there, that have been issued during the uh, low interest rate era with coupons yeah. of zero that absolutely nobody wants to own. Um, and if they're not changing hands because no one wants to buy them, that will presumably make spreads uh, a bit a bit slower to change. Absolutely. I mean, liquidity is, is a major issue. A lot of the deals uh, are predominantly small sized 500 million transactions. They end up going to uh, buy and hold investors and there's there's very little, uh, you know, free float to trade in the market. And quite often over a couple of months, that free float goes down, um, you know, as, as, as the bonds get filtered down into buy and hold investors as well, even larger, you know, deals, 750 to a billion size, they end up getting soaked up by the real money guys. And then you've got no liquidity. Uh, and that stands, you know, in sharp contrast to other regions like uh, Canada, for example, uh, where you see many deals, you know, of 1 billion and well in excess of 1 billion. We had a two and a half billion trade uh, this year, but you know, the Canadians regularly issue huge deals uh, and they're very, very liquid. And the Nordic banks as well tend to um, have uh, very liquid curves. It's ironic, isn't it? Because part of the demand and the case for buying cover bonds, as you said before, rests on them being liquid, doesn't it? Well, to some extent, you're right, but it's also there's a sort of an unwritten sort of a rule that it's bid side liquidity you're looking for uh, and not offer side liquidity. So in a sense, you will always get a good bid for a German fan brief in general. Um, I say that in parentheses because uh, we haven't seen a proper real estate uh, repricing and there are a couple of banks which have a relatively high exposure to the commercial real estate market in the US, which is, um, you know, uh, I understand it's in free fall there. So uh, I know there are some investor concerns with what's going on with their balance sheets. I don't think there's any doubt about their covered bonds, but from their senior perspective, there's, there may be, again, a question of repricing there. Yeah, that's particularly interesting. I mean, you wrote uh, a very interesting feature about that that was then uh, updated for our covered bond report, which is free for all to read on our website. And you uh, looked into into some depth into the uh, German uh, real estate, particularly those with commercial real estate exposure. And um, I don't know. It looked from the article like the the as an asset class, they were they were quite a robust thing. But um, do do not all investors believe that? I don't think anybody has any doubt about the. Uh 
the creditworthiness of all Fanbrief. I think where the doubts lie is on the capital position of uh, a couple of banks um, who have a relatively high exposure to, to the US market. And I think... Uh, that could then, if that you know, if their senior spreads widen, then that could impinge potentially on their on their fan brief as well. Um, but I think the other the other banks are safe. So, Bill, you've also been writing today about another development in the cover bond market, which is the launch of a new index, haven't you, by J.P. Morgan? What's the purpose of that? Well, there are two established indexes out there for cover bonds. Um, one is the Sand and Paws IBOX index, which most people follow. That's that's the dominant one. And then another one is the uh, the Bloomberg Barclays index, which tends to have a, a sort of a lot of uh, well, people say it has a lot of retained deals on it uh, and deals that may not have been properly placed. And you know what I'm told about the JP Morgan index is that it's only going to include um, liquid benchmarks that have been publicly placed, um, and in that sense, they'll be able to get a much better sort of idea on the liquidity of bonds and the real pricing of bonds. So that's what they're trying trying to aim for. And this is because um, you're referring to the fact that some cover bonds get created by the banks that issue them, but not actually placed in the market. They're just kept by the banks and used as repo collateral with the central bank. Is that right? So that's what you mean by those that are not distributed? Absolutely. They're used, they're retained by the issuer uh, and used for repo with, with the central bank, or they are sold to uh, an individual investor, you know, bilaterally negotiated between two parties, the seller and the buyer, not publicly distributed and therefore not liquid. Um, so, it's, you know, their um, sort of claim is that they're excluding these transactions. And do you think it bears scrutiny? Not really. I think uh, the, the IBOX index, I mean, their, their guidelines are quite clear that they only uh, will take account of deals which are over 500 million euros. That's the benchmark size. Whereas the JP Morgan index, the minimum size is 250 million. So straight away there, that's less liquid. Um, and with the IBOX index, they have to have a minimum of three lead managers. And if you've got three lead managers on a deal, that means it's not retained because if it's retained, it's really just the issuer who's on the deal. So de facto, all the ones that are in the iBox are almost certainly um, publicly placed transactions, but that doesn't prevent them from being illiquid. Uh, as we just stated, a lot of the bonds are held by the ECB uh, and you know, quite a lot also will be ending up in buy and hold investors accounts. So they're just not traded. Um, and that, that's the problem. And where do these index providers get the data? get the prices that they sort of feed into the index? So the iBox gets its uh, pricing from a range uh, of issuers, uh, sorry, of, of uh, traders, and they they input their pricing, I think, once every day at the end of the day, and they iBox then aggregate that data uh, to, come up with, to come up with the index. Uh, and that, that is pretty similar to what the JP Morgan one is going to do, but they have a subsidiary called Pricing Direct who uh, will do that job for them. 
So what's the, what is this pricing direct? Is that a some kind of trading system, Bill? Pricing Direct um, is a, a subsidiary of JP Morgan, uh, and they claim to take a number of sources, uh, including secondary market uh, trading from JP Morgan's own desk, which is quite crucial because JP Morgan has the biggest market share in secondary market trading and has done historically for many years. So, uh, you know, they do know where the spreads are. That's that's the that's the thing. Now it's not absolutely clear where pricing direct are taking all their other prices from, but one would imagine it's from a similar set of dealers. Ultimately, that you know report into iBox as well. Is that something of a problem uh, with this index? That it, um, I mean, I'm sure it's all been set up with uh, absolute probity, but um, you know, like a, a casual observer such as myself might think, well, JP Morgan is running an index just on JP Morgan prices, uh, which for which it is already the main the main liquidity provider in the street. Um, have any has anyone else expressed any concern about that? There have been, uh, you know, concerns uh, that you know, in the absence of uh, getting any sort of turnover or pricing in 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 some of these transactions, which which don't trade. Um, that the uh, pricing direct will uh, prioritize the marks that come from their own team um, because their own team generally will have the marks that other people won't have. Um, so the question on people's lips then is, is these J JP Morgan's prices and therefore is that open to manipulation? Uh, of course, it hasn't happened yet and only time will tell how effective the, the index is compared to uh, market. The upside is that it could help, it could be quicker, it could be more sensitive to price changes in the market, um, which the iBox index is, is very sluggish and slow to represent what's really happening um, because it relies on so many people and, and they're just not seeing um, the turnover so you don't see the index trade and that's typically what happened you know this year in the 10-year part of the curve which should have sold off but it hasn't it's actually tightened which is crazy more fundamentally what purpose does a covered bond index have like who uses it and for what it's mainly used by investors who basically benchmark themselves against the index and so for example, uh, they'll, they'll be following the index uh, and whatever the, is in the index, they automatically replicate on their portfolio um, to match the index. Or this is why the manager comes in what they call the alpha, which is the intelligence or the expertise of the manager. They try and beat the index. So even if the index ends up you know, losing money, if they lose less money than the index, they've outperformed the index and they've done well. A minute ago, Bill, you said that the 10-year part of the index had actually tightened this year, whereas yeah. it ought to have widened. So are you saying that the actual index has moved in a different direction from what you think real trading has done? Absolutely. Yeah, it has, um, uh, which is crazy. Uh, it shouldn't have done that. Um, and that's the sort of anomaly that you're getting with very illiquid um, parts of the curve, which haven't traded, is you just get bad pricing information. Um, uh, whereas really what you want to be maybe trying to get is 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 to pick up 
uh, more accurate pricing information, but it'll be inevitably from more concentrated sources, and therefore that's open to manipulation. Well, it'll be interesting to see uh, which people go for. I mean, I think another another problem uh, with sort of index adoption, I suppose, like with anything in financial markets, is once you're an incumbent, be it an incumbent leader in a particular market as a bank or an incumbent, um, I don't know, index or whatever, it's very hard to shift, isn't it? No, people don't voluntarily just give up and start tracking another index um, because I guess they don't really... They don't have a particular dog in the fight, do they? I guess ultimately, if everyone's following the same index, I don't really care how it's constructed. Um, There are plenty of people who didn't want LIBOR to disappear, for example. Um, But we all went through a lot of um, heartache over... Uh, that being got rid of, but that was because yeah. of a, a legal, uh, a legal reason. It was well, it was made to happen, wasn't it? Um, whereas, whereas this, there's no sort of, you know, regulatory push to to use the Kobe index that's being called by J.P. Morgan. I mean, what are people in the market away from uh, the index sort of telling you about whether they're likely to use it or not? Uh, well, I, I spoke to a couple of people, and basically, they they gave it the thumbs down, um, oh. <laughs> and. Uh, you know, I just everybody uses the iBox index. They know it and trust it and believe it. And um, it may well be that the JP Morgan one is used by JP Morgan Research and, you know, some of their own investors, which are huge. Um, so not not to be sniffed at, to be honest. Um, mm. But, um, you know, when we talk about what other people have said uh, about the about the index, then uh, it's um well, one, I quote one person, I have the feeling that it gives the benefit of a whole range of pricing sources, which is, to my mind, is more preferable to having one bank that claims to be a magician. So he's referring there the, a range of pricing sources from iBox compared to um, JP Morgan, you know, putting in prices, which is the magician. So essentially concentrated uh, sort of uh, pricing points, which, like I said before, could be open to manipulation. JP Morgan is not, is not exactly an upstart in the index world, though, is it? Uh, certainly in emerging market bonds, for example, the the MB, the emerging market bond index they run, is the dominant index in that market. So, yeah. you know, they've, they've got good form. They have got good form. And again, in CLOs as well, they, they have a CLO index. And I think, you know, this is just following on, taking advantage where they have natural strengths in, in markets where, you know, they are an undisputed market leader in secondary markets and cover bonds. Um, so it, it's they're playing to their strengths. Well, it's going to be a critical couple of weeks in the bond market that will shape the whole year ahead for corporations, sovereigns, supranationals, agencies and banks. We explain why at globalcapital.com. So do head over there, uh, take a trial if you're not already a subscriber. Uh, but of course, you'll also be able to listen to how all of that pans out by subscribing to this podcast, which is free and easily done by searching for Global Capital Podcast. Thank you to George, Bill and John for joining me to record this edition. But of course, as always, thank you most of all for listening. We'll be back with more from the capital markets next week. So thank you very much and goodbye.